You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. but that was good. Um, I'm Tracy Diamond from the Programs and Publications Department of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Welcome to Poetry and Conversation. We're very happy you joined us tonight. Tonight, we're very excited to welcome four talented local writers, Shirley J. Brewer, Sarah Marrow, Jody Z. Almawali, who is hopefully um, her car is moved soon, um, and Michelle M. Tokarsik. Each poet is going to read, and then we'll have a joint Q&A where they'll all be up here at the table, um, and then they'll close with a poem to sort of cap the evening. And there will, of course, be time to talk to the poets and buy the book in the hallway from my coworker Shailene Bayer. Uh, so please support the poets and their art. Tonight we're going to go in alphabetical order, so you all know what's coming up. Um, so our first poet is Shirley J. Brewer. She graduated from careers in palm reading, bartending, and speech therapy to find her way to poetry. She serves as poet in resident, residence at Carver Center for Arts and Technology in Baltimore. Recent poems have appeared in Barrow Street, Comstock Review, Gargoyle, Poetry East, Slant, and other journals. Shirley's poetry chapbooks include A Little Breast Music, which came out in 2008 from Passenger Books, and Afterwards, 2013 from Apprentice House. New from Main Street Rag in 2017 is Shirley's first full-length collection of poems, Bistro in Another Realm, and it is available today. So please give a warm welcome to Shirley Brewer. Good evening, everyone. Is this mic okay? This is good, thank you. So uh, I just flew in today from Cleveland. I went to the wedding of the young woman who designed the cover of my book. Got in today at four o'clock. Wedding's beautiful. So I decided I would read two poems that were actually had to do with flying, flight. Um, the first one is, is uh, was inspired by an article I read about the first transcontinental commercial jet flight, which took place on January 25th, 1959. And on that plane was none other than the poet Carl Sandberg, who got completely smashed on the flight. There was apparently a lot of booze uh, available. And I'd always pictured him, he's one of my favorite poets, he's very staid and serious, and I was just delighted to picture him having such a good time on the plane. So this is called Above Chicago. Fresh Maine lobsters, filet mignon, macaroon ice cream balls, ooze, brandy apricot sauce, gourmet fare, teases palettes in the Sky Saloon, fueled by cocktails, tipsy travelers celebrate each mile. Even Carl Sandburg, troubadour, poet of the people, succumbs. 
He totters on cat feet, gazes into clouds over Chicago, sings O City of the Big Shoulders in his wanderlust baritone, then settles back into his window seat, his face crimson beneath a shock of white. More exotic drinks, gin and ink wet inside his journal, his journey alive on every page, a firmament of waves, ocean swirls, mystic rain, a far cry from the hogs and butchers of the world. Uh, another, you wouldn't know this was an airplane poem or an airport poem, but what happened was a few years ago, I went to my niece's high school graduation in uh, Phoenix, and the family dropped me off at the airport. It's just dropped me off. The plane's going to leave in half an hour, an hour. The plane was delayed by like four hours. So what do you do in the Phoenix airport? Well, they had an art gallery in the Phoenix airport, and they had this cowboy, these beautiful cowboy uh, pictures. So that delay inspired me to write this poem, which is called Arizona Cowboys. Coffee-soaked mustaches, morning sweat, faces like dusty maps. Five cowboys posed outside a tent, a chorus line in denim, felt hats with upturned brims. The west beckons, where skies expand so stars can breathe, and cacti offer open arms. No one bumps shoulders here. Quiet men bond with space, sling excess baggage into a ticket, thicket of tumbleweed. After that, it's a blur, although they place their trust in dusk. Rattlesnake soup made from scratch, a campfire, a flask. Coyote tails shoot from the lips of five grisly guys until the sun greets them with the burnished spokes of a sheriff's badge. Those are my two airport poems. Um, the name of my book is called Bistro in Another Realm. And the title comes from a poem that I'm going to read next. It's actually a tribute to my parents. Uh, the poem is called Mixing Manhattans in Heaven. When skies drizzle over Baltimore, I taste bourbon in the air and know my parents are drinking Manhattans to each in a bistro in another realm, where ice cubes like stars clink into night, maraschino cherries dazzle the winter-weary earth. After cocktails, my father leads the choir, blends a bevy of languages into song, my mother crochets a pearl afghan every angel covets. My parents lounge, share a cloud, reminisce about how they met at a bus stop in the spring of 1940. I want one more happy hour with them, a wedge of time to toast their light, the way they shape this new green season. Um, the next poem I'm going to read is also a family poem. It's a little different. You know, you see these family pictures, and you kind of wonder, what was really going on there in that family, you know? Everybody's smiling, but hey, what's behind it all? So this is um, revealing 
something about my family. Um, behind the family portrait, Grandma Alice fancied gin and water, cigarettes she stubbed out before the priest came to call. She made pies, embroidered jokes she retold with panache. They nicknamed her father Old Devil Black, researched Satan online, and up pops my family tree. I relish dollops of pandemonium in my past. Grandpa Joe stashed juicy fruit in a secret space in his wooden foot, his legs severed in a train yard mishap. Never know, he wrote, when you might need a small comfort. When Margaret died from a bad heart, Joe and Alice's youngest, my mom said they wept for days, weeks, years. Joe chewed gum, Alice drank gin. True story. Um, I'd like to read this poem about an occurrence. Well, actually, this is kind of an airport poem, sort of. It dragged out because this incident occurred when I was very jet-lagged. It was after a poetry workshop in Ireland, and I flew very early in the morning to London, and I got off the plane and went to the hotel, but my room wasn't ready. So they said, oh, why don't you take a bus tour of London? So I did, but I was really too exhausted. I didn't have time to kind of reorganize my stuff. And this is what happened. Message to a pickpocket. You robbed me in a holy place, Westminster Abbey, stop number seven on the original bus tour of London, Looking up in the House of Kings, halfway between Edward I and Henry III, I thought I was safe. In the presence of monarchs, I forgot the mundane to monitor my zippered purse. If you had lingered, I might have asked you to join me in that moment of quiet reflection suggested in the Abbey leaflet. I might also have dubbed you Sir Asshole. You stole my credit cards, all of my cash. I want you to know the crime you committed did not have a victim. You buried my past, crowned a new me. Now I make light of paper losses. Savor the mustard moon that floats for free above Trafalgar Square. Lots of free stuff to do when you lose your wallet. I learned that the hard way. Um, okay, and I'd like to read this another family poem uh, to honor uh, a relative, my father's cousin, passed away uh, this week, actually, six years ago. And he was a professor of English. He didn't write poetry, but he read it every day. So this is called, uh, this is based on a true story, too. It's called Staircase Anthology in Memory of Ted Adams. A charmer at 88, his balance a personal earthquake. Ted recalls endless stanzas of poetry from college English. In his row house, the old professor climbs from his basement kitchen to the third floor for a nap, reciting the names of writers in alphabetical order, one name for each step, Shakespeare, Tennyson, Updike, Voltaire, 
On my visit, we alternate letters. When P stops me, Ted says, Edgar Allan Poe, evoking a shudder of blackbird wing, a heart beating beneath the oaken floorboard. In his prime, Ted carried a worn briefcase stuffed with lecture notes, student papers, grades, a picture of Myrna Loy, the famous actress he met at a fancy soiree. According to local Albany legend, they entranced one another for hours while she ignored the moth holes in his woolen scarf. Ted knows he won't fall backward on his upstairs trek. Someone will catch him. Baudelaire, the daring Colette, a surprisingly strong Emily Dickinson, her hand a lyric support in the small of Ted's back. Writers never die. They stay with those who keep them alive. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shirley. Um, next, we're going to have the poet Sarah Merrill. Originally from New England, Sarah Merrow pulled up roots six years ago and made Baltimore her home. Her chapbook, Unpacking the China, was the winner of the Quill's Edge Press 2015 to 2016 chapbook competition, and it's available in the hallway. Her poems have appeared in a number of journals, and she has published essays in The Flutist Quarterly, a trade magazine. In addition to writing poetry, she rebuilds and repairs concert flutes for professional flutists. Please welcome Sarah Mara. Hi. Um, so Eric Fromm said, creativity requires the courage to let go of certainties. And certainly, we, both, we all need both courage and creativity in these days to make sense of the world and make change in the world. Most of my poems, in some way, address the power of uncertainty to um, alter our perceptions and to create questions and oppositions in the mind of the reader and perhaps to lead to understanding. So that's the theme of the day if you want to call it that. Um, the first poem is a book from my chapbook, and it, um, it's a spring poem and a morning poem, uh, speaking of oppositions. <laughs> it's called Ghosts of a Baltimore Morning. The bell rings, and when I open the screen to no one, I find no note, no package. An azalea jams the retina with pink chaos. Pigeon folk on the gargoyles of St. John's worry themselves silly, yet don't think to leave. I see balls of rain on the sedum, chalky sidewalks already dry to the tree wells. Women on the porch where you used to live, the usual crawl of cars. A distant siren drags the fallen bloodied to mind, the first clarion since the bell woke me from my night's dim work to demand a watchword at the threshold. Um, this is a section of a poem I've been working on all year, uh, a series called After the Election. 
<laughs> this segment was written about uh, events last January, the end of Obama's presidency, the Women's March, the inauguration, etc. I'm sure you remember. <laughs> January 2017. Staring at a screen that will not disappear, nothing is as it seems, it seems. Before reporters can name the lie, they are fired. Applause tracks run at the back of the room. Now we resist, think to struggle or shout. Some post photos of funny animals, a strutting cockatoo that keeps good time, horses that trot, hooves thrown unnaturally high. Spouses probe the moving center of feeling amid a froth and curdle of fear, go to bed exhausted, vigilant. For what are years? Dystopian novels speak in the thrill of the darkness. Our new Führer cancels grants for artists. Yes, I am afraid, very afraid. I knit increasing dread into a pile of pussy hats. Let fingers caress the silky yarn. Take it from the skein. Slide it along sanded bamboo, needle to needle, back and forth. Each pink row a phalanx each cap a community of holes that yearn for closure. Prayerful stitches to weave people of the streets and the towers together and folding trees and the sculptures of old men into a female creature of power. Form transformed into a welcome birth, immigrants welcoming immigrants. When we arrive at Obama's farewell, he hands his keys to a lost boy with scant vocabulary who locks all the windows and doors. Listen to the sisters, mothers, and daughters. Friends and strangers stand, half a million warm bodies. The crowd breathes through you, vagina-mooned, milk-making heretic. Time to cleanse despair. Lips sound the sky with a great ohm. Glittering in muscular dance, the bleeding serpent passes the tyrant's house. Women and men launching their tender rage down the misty street swing a thousand hips, souls swollen like rock lichen after a storm, slippery, excited, open as one. Only to discover a land where anger threatens like surf on a foreign shore, suffocating and dark. Later, we will poke at the danger from beneath, walk a country road in winter, one eye closed to the snow. But now a cold blanket falls on democracy, drips down our necks, wets our chests with icy water, and alters the path overnight. Um, So this poem, the next one, just wants to be part of that series for some reason. It's called Eclipse. Can you hear me? By August, we longed for something new, a corona, flares to rekindle hope, banana-shaped visions, another decade. Truckers pulled off the highway to watch the haunting shadows. Beyond the shoulder, golfers stopped playing their game. We met a woman from California who gave us special glasses and talked about her dying father, how moving home would mean divorce. 
she declared the event over before it was. We walked on a woodsy path, sprinkled with sun sickles, the grating cicadas mute. Farther south, in Charleston, it turned dark. Whippoorwills woke and sang as if morning would never come. Then across the country, the brief night of totality passed, and we went back to work, appealing the uncertain fate of our dreams. Um, two more poems, both from this book. Um, another kind of uncertainty happens when we travel to faraway places and unfamiliar customs and uh, landscapes. We imagine new maps in our head and create new realities, um, real or not real. Um, I've never read this poem aloud except to myself. Um, but it's actually one of my favorites. I had the good fortune a few years ago to travel to India with my husband, and while he was working, I was able to explore the center of Bangalore. Bangalore at New Year. Sent home in the traffic, fresh from a wedding, a young boy rode bareback a white horse. Past the Houses of Parliament, a pair in an odd mirror, one more fulsome of dome, more tan than white, the old and the evocation of old nearly identical at dusk. Atop a red blanket, fresh from a wedding, a young boy rode bareback a white horse. Past the curb where mongrels nap on stony warmth, where vendors squeeze juice from cane, roast corn, and hawk calendars, where the lowly bend to wield their stunted brooms. Balancing wide-eyed, fresh from a wedding, a young boy rode bareback a white horse. Amid the auto machines of progress, the desperate dance at hive center, a mutation of the bloom at the smoky height of mobile madness, at a proud trot, fresh from a wedding, a young boy rode bareback his white horse. So, one more. Um, this was actually two poems at the beginning, neither of them very interesting. And when I put them together, it was like the unity of opposites. It just started to work. So, natural order. Maybe we've had it backwards, how we are wounded, scar, and heal. Neither muscling through nor creating cover, more a visit to the language, to the landscape of childhood, the path a riot of flora and spider snares. We replant species, fragile and tough, with due respect for microclimates. I eat summer squash and blueberries, turn the color of dirt in the sun. When thought clears out, we are, after all, made of the same stuff, earth, water, sky, with nowhere to go. So here it is, the wisdom of the wound. Once a touch of loud tissue, red and uncertain beneath a skin of worry, reforested permits the pleading membrane its rugged joy, interrupts with laceworks of love, acquiesces just long enough to change. Thank you.
Thank you, Sarah. Um, our next poet is Jadi Z. Omawale. She was born and bred in Baltimore, Maryland, where she began writing poetry in fifth grade and has never stopped. Her chapbook of poetry, The Goddess and the Girl, is newly released by Three Sisters Press, LLC, and that was this spring, 2017. Her work has been published in uh, Temba Tupa, an anthology of poetry, fiction, and essays by African-American women, Essence Magazine, Kaveh Connor Anthologies in 2003 and 2004, Walter and the Black River Review. She is a Kaveh Connor Fellow and has attended Soul Mountain Retreat and the Hurston Wright Writers Week. Jody is currently working on a full-length collection of poetry and completing her first novel, Killing Ants. She's an assistant professor of English at the Community College of Baltimore County. Please give a warm welcome to Jody. Hi, everybody. Sorry I was a little late. I get so turned around in traffic, so I couldn't find a parking space. Parked like four blocks away, and then saw some when I came in, so. Pardon me for being late. Um, so I'm going to read um, female poems. Uh, the collection is called The Goddess and the Girl um, because I really believe in the power of women, the power of the female, the power of girls and women, and the greatness that lies within us, the strength. And um, but society, our culture, tries to damp that down and stomp it out as much as possible. Um, but it's irrepressible. So I'm going to read some girl poems tonight. Um, and my poetry is both fact and fiction. So it's a little bit of true story and a little bit of made up story, which is kind of how I like to write. The first poem is called Daughter. Wakes at 5 a.m. to peer out the window, ponders the darkness inside and out, waits for the sun to meet her. Quiet is a miracle broken by her parents, mother treading lightly, father's footfalls deliberate. Patient as a squirrel, the daughter waits. The sulky smell of coffee floats upstairs, softened by toast, bacon, eggs. Near 6 a.m., doors open, shut along the corridor of houses. Father leaves. Daughter hears the door close beneath mother's press of palm. Daughter hangs back one heartbeat, then springs over baby sister, a sprawl of limbs and stale breath, takes island of the blue dolphins to the front porch, turns to the page last read, hunkers down on the cool stone ledge. At midday, the street bubbles with heat, noise, children. Daughter watches baby sisters. Older sisters watch the daughter. The victim of her brother's teasing daughter hits him with a closed fist, stomps off to his laughter with her best friend, to the woods at the end of the block where they will play I spy, 
chase each other from tree to tree. A call from the mother brings them all in, tables set by older sisters, big brother nowhere to be found. Father is home. Daughter sits against the blade of his knees. They watch the Orioles win again. He looks at her and wonders where his son is. Mother is in her white starched uniform, heads out for an 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift, gives the older girls last minute orders. Daughter walks mother to the car, says, I will make the morning coffee. Mother smiles, thinks about touching the daughter, doesn't. Daddy tells mama to get in the brown Bonneville. Daughter watches the car until it vanishes, returns to her place on the front steps where her brother and his friends compete in the dozens. Yo mama's so fat. The older kids sing a cappella under the lamppost, a swirl of moths above their heads. Daughter looks up at the stars, pretends she is Karana on that island of shiny blue waters surrounded by singing dolphins. Okay. The second poem is called Lovely Perfume and is dedicated to my best friend from childhood, Cynthia. Walking through the woods on this yellow day, you and I humming and smashing rotted leaves. Our feet bang the hard ground, pungent with dead things we examine. Sticks, bugs, worms, bird bones, slimy rocks we pick up, revealing millipedes. Squealing, we hurl them away, run nowhere. The air is exquisite with decay and birth. We shouldn't be here tramping in the woods, but we are adventuring and need to go beyond the block. Mama is in the lemon kitchen making lunch, peering out the back door towards the woods. We are far and away across the stream we call the polluted, which reeks and is full of vague things thrashing about. A smell makes us shudder to a stop. We follow it, finding this strange perfume charming. The necklace of odor smells like tangerines, full of memory. We hold hands and start back. We are singing. Uh, this next poem is a true story, found on 6 o'clock news too often. Marcia, your picture is on the 6 o'clock news again. Your smile, the one little girl share like breath in the school photo taken just last year. You lived a tiny while in the world. It ended for you on a raw, cold day in the stark, barren woods near your home. This wood should be your playground. You, strangled, left in a heap of thin legs among the tangle of tree roots. This becomes your grave, little girl. Your school photo, another evening news soundbite, the anchors sad and incredulous, weep, weep, weeping for Marcia, born into a world that would plot her dying. We watch. 
search the brown eyes, we are glad that Marcia is not our child or one of the other smiling open faces on waxy milk cartons pasted on telephone poles, printed in black and white on tax forms, a close-up at the end of prime television and prime time. Have you seen Marcia? Have you seen this child? Marcia is locked in the basement, chained to a bed, thrown in the back of a van, shoved into a viaduct, buried in the woods, tossed in a river. Marcia is lying among the roots. Um, one more, I think. This is a poem I wrote long ago after walking in the labyrinth. So it's called Labyrinth Poem. At nine, I like old people. Like a loyal dog, I follow them. I am good company, a congenial, obedient listener. I sit on Miss Madeline's sofa, eat stale sugar cookies, drink hot tea. She shows me her blue ribbons, pale hands press photos of her garden. Old Mrs. Smith is baking biscuits. She says, come taste the honey butter warmth. My eyes do not reach above the stove. I am happy and loved like a puppy. Outside the overheated rooms of the aged, I am a ghost child, a good girl in the harsh yellow lit rooms where too many bodies move. Where the good mother is too busy to see me, except when my hands are razors, I used to cut through all that movement to a still, silent space of my own. I dream of honey sweet child falling from her lips. She is too busy moving among all those bodies. There is no time for a honey sweet girl. There is only time for slap or strap. I am the good girl dog. I follow the old ladies and the quiet sanctuaries of their coming deaths. I am made warm and visible in their kitchens. Thanks. Thank you, Jody. Um, to uh, cap off a fantastic night of poetry, uh, we have Michelle Tokarsik. She was born in Brooklyn to a working class white family. They moved to a suburban-like section of Queens when she was nine years old, but her heart has remained in the Bronx. She attended, attended Herbert Lehman College and earned her BA in English. Then she went on to SUNY Stony Brook and got a doctorate. For over two decades, she has been a professor at Goucher College. Her first book, The House I'm Running From, was published by West End Press. Her poems have also appeared in numerous journals and anthologies, including the Minnesota Review, The Literary Review, Slant, Third Wednesday, Calling Home, Working Class Women's Writings, and For a Living, The Poetry of Work. An avowed urbanite, she divides her time between Baltimore and New York City. Please welcome Michelle Tukarsik. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming tonight. 
Okay, can you hear me? Yeah. Good, thank you. I'm going to be reading from my book, Bronze Migrations. Um, you know, this is uh, about my, my family's move from the Bronx in the 1960s, and it's also the story of the borough itself. Um, I experienced the very suburban-like area we lived in in Queens as a kind of culture shock. And uh, this, this uh, poem, I think, captures that. It's called Crossing Over. The move to Queens wouldn't have been, been so bad if it hadn't meant going over a bridge. Stiff girders holding the taxi over water so peaked and so cold. Then a new world of isolated houses, fences blocking off lots of mud. Streets emptied, cars full. The school, a bus ride away. Everyone talked I came, everyone thought I talked funny. What country are you from? So many children, so white. No one ever moved away. In the evenings, I listened for my mother's steps, for restless leaves, for the shifting of my own sheets on the bed. I could not understand the silence, so I filled it with stories. I told myself we'd go back, over that bridge one final time, back to West Farms, back to the bridge where, with Granny one flight up, to the building, with Granny one flight up. I didn't even need to hold the railing. Back to St. Thomas Aquinas, <coughs> desk with inkwells and deep grooves where pencils had pushed down hard, with initials you couldn't erase. Back to the subways, the tracks running high as roofs. In the front car, you can feel the train rock, see it balance, even as it tips into turns. I told myself we'd go back to West Farms. I told no one else. Uh, this next one is, um, is about a friend of mine in the Bronx and about a kind of painful realization I had later. Jasmine. Our mothers walked us to school, talked about teachers and tests. We ran ahead, and I tried to pace my steps to, to, to the strides of Jasmine's armored legs, to match the volume of her words. Mom, can, why can't I play outside today, please? I watched her finger follow words in books. Her legs crossed at her ankles, like mine. And I wondered how anyone could make Jasmine a slave, or why anyone would see Jasmine's dad and be afraid. Mom told me Jasmine's family, with their starched iron clothes and list of chores, were different Negroes. But I saw Jasmine's thick braids that never bounced, the soft brown color of her arm next to mine, I knew they were no different. A year later, we hugged goodbye. They moved to the North Bronx, to a smaller apartment and a new school, where, I heard, Jasmine had no friends. Afternoon, she stayed at home, read a lot. A decade later, on the number seven train, my family had the whole empty car, then a young man boarded, afro framing his dark face, legs apart claiming his seat. 
Our parents grabbed our hands, ignored our whys, walked us through the jolts of moving cars. And I knew we were no different. Um, I mentioned my grandmother. She was a very important figure in my life. Um, she died when I was in my 20s, and this is um, called Granny's Funeral. After the gangrene ate right through her toe and it fell right off, after the gangrene spread up the leg and she wouldn't let them amputate, after the day when I tried to hold her hand and ran, knowing what I reached for wasn't there. Her funeral was at St. Mary's Ukrainian Catholic Church, on a street where General Washington, father of our country, escaped the Hessians, in a church where they'd never said Mass in Latin, in a neighborhood where the funeral party had the only cars that worked, where the church was one of the few places still working, if barely. Outside, the garbage shift in lots shifted subtly. Boarded windows locked out the sun. A few people, lonely in their sparse buildings, watched the whites and black. Inside, the altar boy swayed incense, chanted, in a language I never learned. Short, stoop-shouldered, thin, he was, maybe older than my grandmother. For years I'd been away from these streets, this religion. I enter an alien, documented by mourning. St. Mary the Protectress, I kiss your sorrow. The gold background can't minimize how small Jesus is, curled in your arm. How you can't protect him from his future of outstretched arms, nailed into wood. Um, those of you who have lived in, in urban environments will undoubtedly um, recognize this nuisance that the next poem is about. Roaches. Crack out of cupboards, doubt under the stove, settle into the rest drip of those kitchen sink. Even creep up the creviced bedroom wall. Crush them with shoes or newspapers rolled into clubs. Spray them till you cough up fumes. Turn your cat on their rapid legs. They live. They breed black specks of resistance. They are harder than the crunch of their shells, harder than the 3 a.m. streets without light, harder than the sidewalk when you're thrown down, grocery money grabbed from your hand. But tell that to the people uptown, in their TV homes with wall-to-wall -wall cushioning. Tell that to the people living across the water, watching, Children play in grass lots. To them, the answer is as clear as the crossbones on bug spray. Roaches live in dirt, live with dirt. Um, I, I did return to the Bronx in my um, early adulthood, late adolescence. I went to Lehman College. 
And um, this is about uh, an important instance in climbing the steps of Carmen Hall. As if this were the Philly Museum, she pounds up step, step, steps. Each time her thighs pull, they yank at a picture she's trying to bundle in the back of her mind. She's prepping in the library for Brit Lit One, absorbing the sun rays between classes. But she's not a student. She's paid to teach the book she's reading. A slight gasp. Do people like her get PhDs? Dad worked his way to collecting tolls. Mom tended the kids after 18 years of clerical shifts, never earning more than she could pack into a taxi for a move. Her legs throb arrogance or fear, but the image of her at a blackboard, chalk pressed firm and steady, is too clear to ignore. She'll drop the safety of social work. Apply to grad schools. Move away. But she won't tell anyone her choice. Not her parents or teachers or furrow-browed friends. She's too afraid of even one of them laughing, holding her warm dream in hand and squishing it. Decision. Um, I just I think many of you know the Bronx went through some very tough years. Um, you know, partially because of some of the unscrupulous actions of people. And this is this is the arson years, 1970 to 1980. It cost to heat the pipes, keep water in the faucets, repa- repaint walls chipping lead. So the landlord stopped. Some left. Others bundled coats on beds, blasted their ovens, carried buckets from hydrants, walked up flight after flight. Only one way to get rid of renters with nowhere to go. He ripped out copper pipes and lighting fixtures, then hired a torch to concoct acid and oxidizers, douse the walls and floors, ignite. The fire burned right through. Nothing left, but hundreds of thousands to collect. Again, in five years, an average of of three fires a day, families slept in jeans and shirts, ready to flee. The sky, always orange, always alight. People prayed, Dios mio, Jesus my savior, if I die before I wake. For some, it was the second, the third burn out. They escaped grabbing sweaters, IDs, rosaries. They covered their mouths, their children's eyes, as they ran from smoke and scream. People, many people, dying with eyes outstretched on the bathroom's chipped floor. Survivors with chopped off fingertips, leather faces, hiding their faces in an ant's locked bedroom. Our ancient mariners harmed no one, yet they wandered, throats singed silent, backs bent as if still weighted. If you dared look, they told everything. 
Some say the world will end in fire. We say our world already did. This one um, is uh, about a famous um, Bronx resident. I'll read the poem and then I'll tell you who she is, just in case you didn't get it. Okay. The first shot. No seven-year-old should control fire, sterilize needles, or hear her parents' fights rumbling through the project walls. Every day, Mommy cries, Estas borracho! Her, but today, worry punctuates her screams. Cooley, I have to work. If your hands tremble so you can't give her the shots, who will? Looking down from the chair, she's pulled, she's pu looking down from the chair, she's pulled up to the stove. The girl lights the burner, waits for the blue ring of fire, places her needle in the pot, covers it with water. Stunned at what she knows, mommy, mommy guides, tells her what vein, how much insulin, and never, never let bubbles in the syringe, muy peligroso, like glucose invading her body. The needle, cool enough and filled, the girl holds out her arm, keeps it steady, though goosebumps dot her skin, then pushes the medicine into her vein. When Sonia comes down from the chair, her parents are muted and white-eyed. She is more frightened than she shows and more, more powerful than she knows. Sonia Sotomayor. Yeah, wonderful. Do I have time for one more? Okay, good. Um, this is about um, the, the Bronx um, experienced something of a renaissance um, in the 1990s. Uh, so I well, but still, I would say that was kind of the sweet spot when they were going through a renaissance and before some of the gentrification began. Well, the, the Bronx is still very, in many pockets, a very poor borough. But this, uh, this is about a very fine um, Bronx institution, poetry at the Bronx Museum. Spells are not eye of newt, the steaming cauldron, the black cat under the moon's white light. La Bruja, asphalt black hair taut as her verses, scans the sounds of three races, takes us from the middle passage to a bootstrapped island through the worn, worn streets of Nueva York, they echo. A paisano raps of Arthur Avenue, of friends who grew into other avenues, and friends who stayed watching stores shrink while they grew, sust claiming, sustaining what they knew. In the dimmed light, people shift in metal seats, focused to recall scenes they thought had dissolved, 
Sight here named what they feared never was. Memories made flesh, made word, finally heard. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michelle. Um, if we could have all four poets come up here for the Q&A. I'm turning your mics on. Uh, we are podcasting the event, so for your questions, I will bring a microphone over to you so we can have that saved as well. between music and poetry 
first, I believe, with the poems of E. E. Cummings. Mm -hmm. and the girl and all the poems you read were about girls and the majority were about from a girl's perspective and how it had the, they're aware of the sweetness and the bitterness. And I'm wondering if there's something that you think um, the perspective of such a young age gives us rather than maybe something that's lost as people age. Um, that's a great question. I think that children are so wise and when um, the girl poems come to me, it really is from a space of, there's kind of um, inquisitiveness about the world and also a sadness because you don't really get it why people aren't totally loving. And children are, they are love. They are the embodiment of love and so when as a child, and I think it really hits you around eight or nine, you begin to see that life isn't totally love. That's the space that the poems for me really come in that in-between space of wanting the world to just be this beautiful, open, sweet honey child kind of space, but then your mother not touching you, you know, so it's a great question. Shirley said that Robert Frost meant a lot to her. I want to ask Johnny if Robert Frost meant a lot to you. Yeah, he did. Um, I, I just really credit my early teachers. Um, I grew up in, through um, junior high in segregated um, Baltimore classrooms. Um, well, actually, all the way through high school, even though by high school, um, Baltimore schools were really being integrated. Um, but I had these wonderful English teachers, and we learned the speeches uh, from Shakespeare, and we learned Frost poems, and um, from the time I was very young all the way through high school. So I was opened um, to a lot of literature, and I loved literature, and, the, and teachers kind of responded to that. So. I would say, yeah, Frost was, he's definitely up there. E.E. E. Cummings, too. <laughs> he was the first one. I saw those lower cases, and I'm like, oh, God, that's, that's really <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> you know, play with it. And then I was really influenced also by the new black poets, mm -hmm. the, the revolutionary poets, Sonia Sanchez and Nikki Giovanni and others that were really breaking the language apart and just um, showing that you could kind of be acrobatic with language. So, but Frost is the boss. Okay, is that Shirley's minute? Other questions? Sarah, you said that you've been working on this poem for the past year. 
Um, <laughs> often when we see a poem, it's uh, relatively short, something one can read in, in one take, and often uh, maybe read again, but people don't spend time with poems the way they do with, say, fiction. And yet to think of you working on that same poem over the course of a year is quite astounding. So uh, this is a question for you and for all of you. Um, how do you work um, on your poems? Do you work on the poem in a single take and then keep coming back to it? Do you do pieces at a time? Do you um, edit and re-edit and re-edit? Uh, do you put them out there and then don't come back for six months? What's your approach to writing? Um, well, that's, that's a series. So I started um, after the the day after the presidential election last year, just writing down feelings, images, news, thoughts, reactions um, from the soul perspective. I mean, we all have enough news to go around, more than enough. But um, just from an inner reaction perspective. And <clears throat> it took on a kind of cohesive shape and then I put it away, and then the next month I had, there was a whole new bunch of news and feelings and reactions, and things have changed so fast in the last year that I felt compelled to record those changes at every level. Um, so there are about six poems, and they're a little bit longer than my usual poems, which are usually you know, more than three stanzas long or four stanzas long. Um, and in terms of revision, I go back. What happens with me, uh, it'll be interested to hear what you all say, but what happens with me is I, I get it all down. <clears throat> and I am like a bulldog with a bone. I can't let it go. And I just wake up in the middle of the night and I keep writing and writing, you know, changing and moving things around and refining and slicing and Dicing, and then um, after about a week, I put it away. And then about a week later, I look at it and I say, oh, no, that needs lots of work, and I start all over again. But, so it takes a few months, mm -hmm. several months. And then I find, even now, I look at this and I say, yeah. I want to work on that. <laughs> and um, I don't really think they're ever finished, but I do think they get more crystallized over time. I mean, in some ways it's similar. I, I often start with, you know, usually there's some kind of an image or a question that compels me. And I try to get that down pretty quickly. It's, it's, I mean, if I don't have the, if I can't, I'm not in the spot where I can actually write a poem, then I had Grace Paley visited to Gowdry years ago, and she said, if you're, if you're a poet, you should always have pockets because you need to have paper and pencil with you at all times, you know. So, yeah, I try to just write something down quickly and then go, after that, I write something in very rough form and try to fix it, you know, make, do a little, a little bit of editing and, you know, then, co then come back to it. I mean, I, I even tell my students, like, you know, look, you know, I mean, at least put it, at, if you can even get away for a couple of hours, it'll be clearer to you. But then it's similar, I'll go back again. There's one friend I share poems with from time to time, give each other some feedback. But yeah, I mean, it depending on the particular poem, it, it might take a few weeks, it might take months, you know, and, and that often, there often is that sense of, I'm stopping, 
Okay, like it's not that I feel like it's perfect, but okay, this is this is when I'm stopping. You know, it's as far as it's going to go in the next five years. I um, depends on the poem. Like some poems um, are birthed and they feel right, um, and I may mess with them a little bit, but they feel right. But then most of my poems, um, I keep going back. I will keep going back until I think, stop it, just leave it alone. Um, the Goddess and the Girl, the, the title poem of the book, um, started out as a totally different poem. It reminds me of what you said about having two poems and then they fit better together. And so it started out as this totally different poem about a woman who would go to the hair salon and not look in the mirror. And then um, I love the goddess images, and I kept thinking, goddesses, mirrors, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall. And so I, that poem, I deconstructed it and built it into the goddess. So it can take, you know, any amount of time, but that one took like literally years. I wrote that at UB, the, the original, yeah. Mark. Um, Shirley and I graduated um, from UB in their writing program years ago now. And it was a neck with all of the above. Uh, my process is I always write with purple gel pens. I, honestly, I, ha I have to have my purple gel pen <laughs> and a plain piece of paper. And, you know, I go through many revisions, but um, the inspirations, like the, the message to a pickpocket, I'm telling you, it wasn't an hour after I lost my wallet and I thought, I wasn't happy about it, but on the other hand, I thought, this is going to be one hell of a poem, because I knew it was going to write a poem about it. Yeah. And the Staircase Anthology, Ted, my relative, Ted, um, had the beginnings of Parkinson's, so when he would go up the stairs to take his nap, you know, it was, it was uh, he was unsteady, so he would say the writers, and I just thought, this is so brilliant. This has got to be a, this has got to be a poem. You know, this deserves to be a poem. But then, yeah, the idea is there, but it, it yes, it takes a long time to get it down on paper, and then the revision, until it flows the way you know, the way you want it to flow. It can take weeks, months, yeah, yeah. a long time to go back to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's not an easy process, I don't know. I know, I hear some poets say, well, oh, I just had this idea, and I just sat down, and I say, you're lying to me, come on. Right. It doesn't work that way. And this will be our last question. I guess the most general question, why poetry? Why? Uh, when you've had things that were really important for you to express for one reason or another, or really something that you needed to utter, why do you think that you all have gravitated to poetry rather than fiction or the essay or any other form? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Since it's my husband, I'll, I'll answer okay. that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I think the short answer for me is uh, because of beauty. And um, for me, poetry is incredibly beautiful. Yeah. It can be, and I crave beauty. I think we need beauty in our daily lives. And 
A poem can be just a little shot of beauty. A poem can be a whole day. It can be as short or as long or as deep or as shallow as you want, but if it's beautiful, it makes life better. Yeah, that is, that, that's, a, that's a tough answer to top, I, I would say that. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly that's true, the beauty there. It's also that for me, I, I, I have written some creative nonfiction, but I think that what, what I really like about poetry is is ju just the conciseness, the way that, you know, the, that struggle to just get the perfect image and to get that so succinctly like that. I tried writing fiction, but I, I can't, I don't have the the talent for characterization or plot, you know, not, not the things that you need to move for fiction a lot. You know, that's, I think, poetry, maybe it's in some ways to say poetry found me. I actually, I write fiction mm -hmm. as well as, mm -hmm. as poetry, and it just depends on what it is. Um, poetry just comes. I can't resist it. So um, it's like walking one evening and seeing this bee of um, geese above my head, and I just had to write about it. So it just, it's like you can't help it, do you all feel that way? You just can't help it. And my, the fiction is when I feel like I need to tell a much longer kind of story that a poem may not allow me to do. Yeah. Well, I started out writing fairy tales as a seven-year-old. I wish I'd saved them. I threw them out. I wish I had. They might have become poems. But um, I, um, I have poets in my family, my grandparents. Not famous poets, but poets, aunts, uncles that wrote poetry. And I wrote poetry in high school and college, and then I became a speech therapist, and I put it aside. But I used poetry with my students to help with their speech. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I, quote, retired from uh, teaching, I, that's when I really immersed myself in, in poetry. And it just, it just, I think, is something that's always been in my blood since I was very young, you know. And I, I you know, started with Robert Frost, and I just, and once you start reading poetry, and you, yeah. there's so many poets to read. So many wonderful contemporary poets yeah. now, and and I just, you know, when I think I know them all, someone will say, "Well, have you read so and so?" And oh my, rush to the library. I mean, I have a huge library of books, and I read every day, every single day. I don't write every day, but I read read poetry every single day. Yeah. yeah. So, thank you, Sarah, Michelle, Drady, Shirley. Please give the poets another big hand of applause. Thank you all for sharing your evening with us. As you are leaving, um, you can sign up for our email list to find out about more of these poetry events. And please also fill out an evaluation. Um, it helps us with future programming. And of course, all of the books, um, each of the poets have books available, so take some time to look at those as well. Thank you. Oh, oh, we were going to read each of those. Oh, my oh, goodness. goodness. I can tell
grateful to all of you for coming. Um, it means a lot to be able to share poetry, and I'm grateful to you. And I think in these times of change, we need we need each other. So um, this poem was written on the occasion of a few years ago of my husband's birthday. Um, it's entitled, When You're 64. <laughs> Mornings in bed when talk is an ocean. It swells and troughs the waters of life. We are held and rocked here, the other, the only here. Were there a perfect sound? Would it pulse like passing trains or wing beats and weep with the man by the brook by the trout lilies? Would it reveal a truth or in its truth speak only of this interval? Were there a perfect shape? Would it find our eyes or our hands? Would we know it surely as in a dream, as a still life, or as a schooner made of clay? Were there a perfect love? Could it be fixed in marble or in ice? Would it still swim and float among all other strengths at the same time we work at only listening? Here in the room where inside meets outside and morning walks the roof line, I am the ark and the dove on your arm and will still need you, still feed you, mine forevermore. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually did go back to the old Bronx neighborhood um, probably a decade ago now and uh, looking for my old apartment building. And so this is Elegy for a Building. I'm hoping for a holdout. True, its windows will be smashed, its hardwood floors wet rotted. Graffiti tattoos will mark its war years. Still, my building might be Ithaca. I, a slight Orant Odysseus, 40 years gone, returning now. The buildings, yes, buildings, are shorter, newer. The streets much quieter, afraid to speak neighborhood too loud. As I get closer, my stomach churns, the way it did when I was waiting for test results. The envelope finally in my hand, in a minute I'd know. There's too much sky ahead on the corner where my house was. Even a burned out, boarded up shell says, yes, your home was here. Your family contained the, whole, the rooms that contained it. Empty space holds none of my memories. But the space is a playground. Its fence shining, fresh silver paint. Safety mats cover the ground, cushioning children when they fall. Unafraid they play, unaware their neighborhood has been reborn. Oblivious to me as I'm born. Thank you. Rom-com. In old movies, John Gavin, 
the clean-cut white boy, cleft chin, tall, dark hair, handsome, flirted, flirted with Susan Hayward on an elevator. Torrid 120-minute affair follows. Julie London at a 1960s poolside, sexy white woman. With my beauty and your brains, we would have the perfect white child, she says in Germanic accent to James Mason. Blonde Pixie Sandra D rides the waves, skinny arms wet. She balances water and boy crush. The lone white girl among the tall, dark, handsome, all-American white boys. James Darren names her girl Midget, Gidget. I watch in living color circa, circa 1968. Little girl, black. I am not in the elevator, by the pool, or on that broad beach with moon doggy. I watch little girl, black is not in the movie. You know, you should have been in the movie, but I love Sandra D. Sorry, I just loved her. I loved her too. Yeah, you should have been in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think most poets have a signature poem. I, a poem that you, in your secret heart, you feel like it's sort of a favorite of yours. And this is my signature poem that I wrote uh, it was the year, I wrote it the year before I retired, retired from the school system, when I decided I was going to pursue a life as a poet, and I didn't know how that was going to turn out. As so a goddess poet. Yeah, as a goddess poet, thank you. <coughs> and so I had these friends, Ruth and Jack Shulkrit, who live in Arnold, and they had neighbors who won this green taxi cab in a, in a soft drink contest. And I loved that taxi cab. I used to go see Ruth and Jack and say, let's walk down the street and look at the taxi. So why don't you write a poem about that taxi? So I wrote this poem. I, I didn't realize at the time that, that, that through the poem, that taxi would become my vehicle of, of transformation, so to speak, into my new career. So this is called Making Change. I buy a green checker taxi at a junkyard, fix it up, including the meter, and drive around town charging myself for every mile. I spend the money on travel, a month in Venice, three weeks in France, but always I come back to my green checker cab, hanging souvenirs from the rear view mirror. When my schedule allows, I pick up fares, take them to a museum, regardless of their destination. <laughs> Make time for culture, I say. Arrayed in accessories resplendent in the sun, I wave at strangers with both hands, steering at last from the inside. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.